Capitol Report is a production of Senate Media Services. This week, Senator Lindsey Port advocates for making housing more affordable, and Senator Judy Seberger highlights options to ensure the viability of emergency services, plus responses to the latest budget forecast. Stay tuned for this and more on this week's Capitol Report. Welcome to this week's program. I'm Shannon Lurkey. Budget officials released the latest financial outlook for the state of Minnesota, allowing the governor and legislative leaders to finish crafting supplemental spending plans for the 2024 session. Budget Commissioner Aaron Campbell called the forecast a lot of good news due to a surplus of $3.7 billion for the current biennium, representing an increase of $1.3 billion since the November budget report. The outlook is also improved for the following biennium, fiscal year 2026-27, projecting a surplus of $2.2 billion. However, a note of caution remains because spending is projected to exceed revenue in the next biennium, resulting in a structural imbalance. Here's what Governor Tim Walls and legislative leaders had to say about the news. 2024 is a bonding year. That's going to be our focus. Now is the time to keep our eye on an economy that is steadily improving Watch our investments grow. Focus on the work ahead of us in the bonding bill and a few key priorities. Um, We're moving steady and responsibly. Coming out of a pandemic, coming out of a global recession or potential for a global recession, Minnesota is well positioned for a future economy as any place in the world, and we're making that case. This is a destination. We are the star of the north. We kicked off this week. We're going to be advertising in states across the country. Come to a state where you have the opportunity to grow, thrive, be yourself free of interference, whether it's in your bedroom or with your children's education. Uh, All of those things make Minnesota a great place to be. Our economy continues to outpace expectations and our financial future is stable. The budget that Democrats enacted in the historically productive 2023 session has laid the groundwork for long-term prosperity, a growing middle class, and a future where every Minnesotan has the opportunity to succeed and build a better life. The main focus of our work in the 24th session will be a capital investment bill. There are communities all over the state of Minnesota in need of local road improvement, bridge improvement, wastewater infrastructure, and um, the budget forecast says that we have the opportunity to do decent investments in our communities across the state. It is a good news day for us. This is a good forecast. It is a proof point of the work that we have done uh, in this last uh, biennium for the people of Minnesota. Uh, We uh, see that this is a great place, Minnesota, to raise families, uh, to run a business, um, and to experience opportunity and prosperity. Today's forecast shows that we are still on the verge of a deficit. I know you heard differently, but I want to walk you through that process. That deficit is due to the reckless, irresponsible, and unaffordable spending spree last year. The state is still spending. $1.5 billion more than it is taking in. When you look at your family budgets, if you are spending more than you are actually taking in, that results in a future deficit. So despite a continually growing economy, there still isn't enough tax revenue to meet the DFL's spending demands. This goes to show that we have a spending problem in Minnesota, not a revenue problem. The tax and spend policies that Democrats have proposed over the years and put into law are causing our state to go into this boom and bust cycles. Democrats continue to entertain more spending this session 
Well, state officials, as we heard today, are urging caution on our state spending. Meanwhile, Minnesotans are still struggling with $10 billion of new tax increases after last session. $10 billion to our families. Senate Republicans are working hard to repair that damage done by Democrats. During the 2023 legislative session, $1 billion from the budget surplus was directed to housing. Last week, a bipartisan coalition of lawmakers and advocates called a press conference to outline policy proposals intended to spark the construction of more affordable housing options throughout the state. Senator Lindsey Port, chair of the Senate Housing and Homelessness Prevention Committee, joins me to talk about the effort. Thank you for being here. Of course. Happy to be here. Over the interim, your committee traveled the state to get the big picture on the current state of housing and the housing stock and affordability. What did you learn? Well, we learned partially what we already knew, which is that Minnesota is in dire need of more housing. We're over 100,000 units short of what the state needs to really fulfill its housing needs. But we also learned that that looks really different across the state. In greater Minnesota, you have really um, communities that are trying to grow, and they need workforce housing so that the businesses there can expand. Um, In Rochester, uh, Rochester has an undersupply of 500 units a year sort of growing. Um, Duluth needs is in desperate need of more multifamily housing. Uh, it really looks different across the state, but the need for more housing connects literally every community in the state. Statewide universal need. Um, a bill sponsored by Senator Republican Senator Eric Lucero mm-hmm. would limit regulations on residential development. For example, a municipality could not ban vinyl siding or mandate specific aesthetics like brick facades or steep roof inclines or lot sizes. This has been controversial in the past. Does it remain so? I think it's really changing. The answer is a little bit yes and no. Um, For a small group of people, yes, they really want their communities to look a specific way, to have a specific feel and a specific type of housing built. What we've seen over the course of decades across the country is that those tend to be exclusionary zoning policies meant to keep communities both looking the way they also always have, but also sort of putting up barriers to who can live in them. Um, and what we're seeing from cities across the state is that they are trying to grow. Um, they are trying to grow to meet demand for economic demand, to uh, you know make sure that their community is moving with everything else. And that that sort of uh, exclusionary zoning policy that used to exist is no longer in the interest of the community. We'll certainly still have some pushback on that, I think. But what I really want to highlight is the coalition coming together to talk about these zoning proposals is probably a group of people you will never see in a room working on one thing for any other reason. Um, It is builders and developers. It is Republicans and Democrats. It is city officials. It is housing advocates. It's nonprofit. It's for-profit. It really is a huge coalition that agrees we need to remove barriers to building more housing. And you mentioned Republicans and Democrats because another bill uh, uses that provision we were just talking about, about removing the aesthetic uh, mandates. Um, And this bill has bipartisan support. Uh, 
Senator, Republican Senator Rich Draheim is on the bill, and Republic, or DFL Senator Nicole Mitchell is carrying it. So in addition to limiting city aesthetic mandates, it would also increase density through smaller lot sizes, mm-hmm. would allow residential lots to be subdivided, and would also limit parking requirements. So this is a multi-pronged approach. Will it be effective? So I think the answer to any successful zoning bill is it's going to have to have multiple components. There's not one silver bullet that is going to sort of solve the housing crisis. Um, What we knew when we put a billion dollars towards building new units across Minnesota is that we actually have to then build those units, and that means we have to take down barriers. I think that in order for this to be successful, we do need a broad coalition. We need folks who are able to look at this from different places, but we're also going to need um, environmental folks who are able to look at what does this mean for our environment 50 years in the future. We're going to need to work um, with folks who have concerns about parking, but also aesthetic mandates. It's going to be um, really a coalition effort, but also a bill that takes from a lot of different areas. And then one other aspect of this particular bill is that cities would have to allow the development of duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, sixplexes, Mm -hmm. townhomes, courtyard apartments, small cottage homes, and more. The list goes on, on residential lots. So these are examples of what the bill is calling middle housing, housing for middle incomes, and ideally these projects would be close to transit and there would be incentives to build with high energy efficiency. This would be a big change for Minnesota, yes? Yes. I mean, making it easy to build middle housing, which can span, um, you know, from affordable to market rate, can be all of those different sizes that's listed. Making it easy to build those kinds of housing would be a huge change for Minnesota. Communities are already doing this. Uh, We went up and toured when we were in Duluth, a great uh, site that they had sort of that cottage, um, little cottages around a nature reserve. It was a beautiful, uh, really affordable option for home ownership. But it took them several years of continuing to fight to approve all of the different zoning things that needed to change for that one development. And if we keep doing this on a single development by single development by single development pace, we're just never going to catch up. So it would be a huge change to make it easy, yes. But I don't think it's a huge change of what our communities are already trying to do. Over recent years, there has not been a shortage of luxury homes and apartment complexes being built. So what are builders saying? Because you say many are on board. Um, Will these changes in law allow the construction industry to still have an adequate uh, profit margin in terms of of building smaller middle-income homes? Absolutely. I mean, we know that developers are going to continue to build what they can sell. What we also know is that we put a billion dollars last year into investing in the state's affordable housing. And almost two-thirds of that is about development and that development of affordable units. If we can't build those units because of exclusionary zoning or it has to go, you know, specific project by project by project and it takes years to get any of those approved, that investment is going to fall flat for Minnesotans. So really this is about opening the options for developers to create the kind of 
um, both affordable but also creative housing that people are really looking for. We've seen a lot of those same luxury apartments and five hundred or $600,000 homes continue to be built over the last years. What we haven't seen is starter homes, smaller homes, duplexes, triplexes, things that actually give folks an opportunity to move into their first home. And that really is what we're looking for, housing that fits the needs of Minnesotans. Uh, you mentioned it last fall on this program. The Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan mentioned it at a recent press conference, and that is the idea of preventing landlords from discriminating against renters using public assistance. So this is a, a different bill here. Um, public assistance called Section 8. Where does the bill stand this session um, in terms of getting that done about, you know, reducing the restrictions that Section 8 renters face? And would that provide someone with a housing voucher then more options to be a renter? We've been talking about home ownership, but there's also renting and Absolutely. there's just, you know, people need places to live. For sure. This would be a huge game changer for folks who both have a Section 8 voucher, but also as we stand up our state-based voucher program, uh, Bring It Home, which we passed last year, it will give an increased opportunities for those folks as well. This is a critical piece of legislation, and we're delighted uh, that Commissioner Lucero from the Human Rights Department, um, her agency is authoring or is, is leading the charge on this bill. It's already uh, low income or uh, folks who are on public assistance are a protected class in Minnesota. So really, this is already the law. We're just going to clarify it. Senator Lindsay Port, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Senate Republican leaders called a press conference to unveil their Repair Minnesota agenda. The state budget is in trouble. Schools are crushed under the new mandates. And Minnesotans have less money in their pockets. This year, Republicans are going to work to repair that damage from all the Democrat control done by the auto control spending, by all their mandates that they put on everything from uh, schools to businesses and securing bonding that will focus on the core needs of this state. We are proposing that we keep the 2023 funding levels, but remove the mandates to allow the schools to make locally driven decisions about what is best for their students and staff. We're very concerned about the overall debt of our state. A bonding bill this year has to be much more modest and focused on our core infrastructure, safe roads, safe bridges, and clean water. Our caucus has discussed a bonding bill, and we're very open to doing one, but we are going to repair the bonding process by sticking together for a modest bill. Uh, that only includes what I said previously, core infrastructure, safe roads, bridges, and clean water. We kind of saw in the news that uh, Republicans and Democrats had reached some sort of consensus on the SRO bill. Um, but I think everybody forgets we have a bicameral legislature. It's great that the House has done a lot of work and made some improvements to the initial bill that was uh, delivered there. However, I don't think anybody would, would tell you, certainly law enforcement, and I don't think schools would tell you we have 100% consensus on that is the bill that's going to fix the problem. Aspiring educators joined DFL lawmakers to advocate for a tuition waiver for student teachers. Teachers in Minnesota make 28% less than workers in other sectors of the same level of education. With the student debt that I'm facing, even though I've had scholarships and grants and I work a full-time job, 
I'm still in a position where I'm struggling to make ends meet, putting off medical care, saving for retirement, buying a home, or starting a family. So what we've come up with uh, for this bill is that we will waive tuition for that semester or that time period that they are out uh, in the classroom. So they do not have to worry about paying the tuition that year. That will lighten uh, the financial burden upon them uh, and make it easier for them to be out in the classroom. Teaching is my passion. It's what I wanted to do since I was a child. I wanted to be a beacon of representation, change, social justice, and love in the lives of my students. But I never fully imagined that I'd have to sacrifice so much, including my financial stability and well-being, just to fulfill this dream. It's a tough road, and we make it really hard for student teachers. You work full-time, you don't get paid, you working other jobs is almost impossible, too. You pay more for school tuition as a student teacher, too, than you do for any of your other semesters. So essentially, you're getting hit twice financially. And lawmakers and EMS professionals urged passage of an emergency funding bill. This is not Democrat or Republican. This is, this is a statewide issue, and it is our job to put the people of Minnesota before politics. Perm Area EMS, along with other rural ambulance services, has experienced year-over-year losses due to the increasing cost of medical supplies, labor, equipment, vehicles, and which has been great which has greatly outpaced the reimbursement from federal payers, state payers, and commercial insurance. This comes at a time when we have an aging and medically needy population and are seeing increasing requests for ambulance services year over year. Sadly, EMS is not considered an essential service in the state of Minnesota, so many of the mechanisms by the state that supports essential services are not currently available to the EMS systems. Minnesota statute section 144F.01 gives a ambulance district the authority. The statute gives us the authority to levy a tax to the service that we provide. But the caveat is that each individual committee has to sign on by resolution and approve and give the authority to the provider, in our case ALS service, the ability to tax, to collect money enough so we could make our break even. That's all we're asking to do is to break even. That has been a huge obstacle, a huge challenge, because these small communities can't afford to pay any more taxes. Number one, they can't even afford to help subsidize their own ambulance service. In a lot of my rural communities who are just doing their best to provide BLS service, they're asking me to look at a regional tax authority for this issue. And I look at them and I, I want to give them that opportunity, but it makes me sad because I know at the state level it's net green. It's inequitable, it's unfair, and it's a rural issue. So that is what I'm trying to elevate. There are people making money on this, and there are rural communities starving and asking to tax themselves more on this issue. The Emergency Medical Services Task Force, created by the legislature during the 2023 session, held its first meeting in December, followed by field hearings around Minnesota. A final report is due to the legislature by mid-August. Meanwhile, the situation is dire, and some recommendations will likely receive consideration this session. Joining me is the co-chair of the task force, Senator Judy Seberger. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Field hearings were held in Winona, Mankato, Elbow Lake, and Mountain Iron. Were there common threads or are the challenges different depending on the different regions? 
The common threads that we saw with regard to EMS delivery in the state of Minnesota um, are very, very similar from region to region, um, according to what we heard when we were on these field hearings. Um, a couple different issues. Number one, workforce challenges, having problems with recruitment and retention of qualified EMTs and paramedics. Um, reimbursement rates are an issue. When you have um, uh, a population that is uh, largely a Medicare population, your reimbursement rates are going to be lower. The other issue is ambulances generally are only paid for their runs if they transport the patient. So if we go out and we provide care um, or an assessment of a patient but don't transport, no revenue is generated from that run. Um, those were a few of the issues that we heard. Um, Part of it also had to do in some, with the Greater Minnesota response times and assembling personnel from volunteer services. So common issues, maybe different reasons for the issues, but there were common threads. There was a press conference last week that was promoting a bill carried in the Senate by Grant Housechild. It has bipartisan support, and it would provide $120 million in emergency funding to prop up EMS and ambulance services. In your view, is emergency funding necessary right now? I think Senator Hanschild's bill really highlights the issue that we're seeing in greater Minnesota. We're seeing towns and ambulance services throughout Senator Hanschild's district that are, they're losing money and they're losing an astonishing amount of money due to um, uh, low reimbursement rates and other reasons. Um, so his bill really highlights the need in greater Minnesota. Um, I, I think that is an area that needs immediate at attention, and whether it's through Senator Hanschild's bill or some other relief, um, I think that's something that we're focusing on right now this session so that we can deliver um, some aid to his region. Well, and to further uh, that point, Senator Hanschild represents a very large and sparsely populated rural district in northern Minnesota. And he called the, the discrepancies in funding an equity issue because some areas of the state do have positive balance sheets for their EMS and ambulance services. And other states or other areas of the state, as you said, are really struggling financially. Is it an equity issue? I think it can be viewed that way. I think Senator Hosschild um, has a point. When you look at his area, which is geographically enormous, um, and the run volume and call volume in his area versus down in the metro, there's no comparison. It really is a um, it's a numbers game, right? So the more runs that you that you have, the greater your revenue is going to be. When you only have a few runs a year, you're you're going to experience those losses at a at a much more dramatic uh, rate. According to the National Conference of State Legislatures, or as people around here say, NCSL, uh, 13 states and the District of Columbia have passed laws that make EMS an essential service. Minnesota is not among those states. Should Minnesota make EMS an essential service? I believe that we should. Um, I, I think people are surprised to learn that it's not. When you call 911, your expectation is you're going to have help when you need it. And people, when they call 911, they're having a, one of the worst days of their life. And it's, it's been my honor as a paramedic to, to be there for people when they need us. I think um, it absolutely should be an essential service. 
Now what comes with that is how do we fund it? So that's something that Representative Hewitt and I have been really working on. Um, we're not there yet, we don't have the answer, but we're exploring a lot of different options uh, to ensure that we can fund it when we do make it an essential service. And one of the recommendations that you have is to develop what you've called a sprint medic model. What do you mean and how would this help? So if you look at it, again, I'm looking at Senator Hanschild's area, um, again, for an example. They survive mostly on a volunteer model where when the tones go off, when a call comes in, the tones go off and then people come from wherever they are to get to the fire station or the ambulance station, staff the ambulance, go out to the call. And that takes time. If we have a, a sprint medic or a, or a paramedic, which is a higher level of care than a, 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 an EMT, if we have a paramedic full-time at the ready who, when the call comes in, can go directly to the scene and start providing ALS care, advanced life-saving services care, a higher level of care until the BLS truck or the, the EMTs arrive, um, that patient has a better chance of survival. On the converse, if the ALS, if the paramedic gets out to the scene and they determine that the patient doesn't need a transport, doesn't need to go in, they can cancel the ambulance and then that frees up that crew for another call and relieves some of the burden and the stress off of them. So that's, that's the sprint medic model in a nutshell um, and I think that it would really benefit um, those in Senator Hanschild's district, those in Senator Rasmussen's district, and other areas where they really rely on the volunteer BLS model. Um, and along with that, you also mentioned during a task force meeting that there should be an expansion of community paramedicine. What does that mean? So our community paramedic program is a really neat program here in the state of Minnesota. And what that is, is they're specially trained paramedics. So they're paramedics that have experience out in the field. They've got a few years under their belt. Um, they receive additional training and they're actually able to go into people's homes and provide some level of care. And the reason why I'm interested in expanding our community paramedic model is because we see a lot of uh, EMS calls for things that are not an emergency, but people still need some level of care. Um, and if we can address some of those problems upstream, if we can send a community paramedic out to help this person who needs, who really just needs a, a, an appointment with their primary care physician, maybe they take a set of vitals, help them set up their primary care appointment, help arrange transportation, that will take some of the burden off of the ambulance services and provide better care to people out in the community. Uh, finally, what about volunteerism? Because historically, the delivery of EMS and ambulance services has relied heavily on the work of volunteers, but burnout, stress, and other factors are contributing to the decline. Representative Jeff Becker, a Republican from Browns Valley, suggested incentivizing businesses to encourage their own employees to become volunteers. Could that help or anything else? Do we need to keep volunteerism as a part of this model? Volunteerism has played such an important part in sustaining our EMS services throughout the state of Minnesota. The volunteer model really subsidizes the entire industry with all the, I don't want to say free work, but volunteer hours that are provided by folks um, on paid on call services, and I'm one of them. Um, we provide that value, that readiness at a no cost or low cost uh, basis to our services. Representative Backer's idea, I think, is a good one. I don't know that it'll get us all the way there. 
when I mean, if you have a workforce shortage to begin with, um, and then you're asking people to volunteer time to do this kind of a thing, I think it's really hard to find the, enough people to continue to sustain this model. But it's something that we've been looking at it as, with the task force also. Well, we will keep watching and wait for that report to come out. Senator Judy Seberger, thank you. Thank you. Join us again next week as we delve into more topics affecting Minnesotans. I'm Shannon Lurkey, and on behalf of all of us at Senate Media Services, thanks for watching.